1297 Statute Concerning Tallage. Sparing you the original version, the Act in full reads as follows. No tallage or aid shall be taken or levied by us or our heirs in our realm without the goodwill and assent of archbishops, bishops, earls, barons, knights, burgesses, and other freemen of the land. The United Kingdom's 21st century constitution can directly trace its commitment to the concept of consent from the people back to 1297. It represents recognition by the executive that measures cannot be imposed on the people without their assent through parliament. I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. This is Jacob Rees-Mogg. One of the lessons of the coronavirus pandemic has been the importance of public consent for the extraordinary measures introduced to tackle COVID-19. The Parliament was able first to debate and then to agree to the necessary regulations has been of enormous help in persuading the great British public to play their part. This principle of consent displayed so well in 2020 and 2021 such a fundamental one for our parliamentary democracy, can be traced all the way back to the 13th century, a fascinating period which includes not just Magna Carta and the travails of Simon de Montfort, but also the 1297 Statute Concerning Tallage. As you heard at the beginning of this episode, I referred to this piece of legislation in my lecture to the Study of Parliament Group, and I am delighted to have had the opportunity to explore the events leading up to its passage with one of our leading academics of the period. I hope you enjoy the insights provided by Dr. Ambler as much as I did. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Sophie Ambler, who is a medieval historian and wrote an excellent biography of Simon de Montfort, which I would strongly recommend um, England's first revolutionary and the death of chivalry, the song of Simon de Montfort. I listened to it over Christmas as an audiobook um, and learned an enormous amount from it. Um, so Sophie, I'm extremely grateful that you've joined us for this podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, and what I thought would be interesting to discuss is 1265 and the first um, gathering of parliament when the boroughs are represented. And you, you've written about how that ties in with Magna Carta, and it's trying to weave together the strands of our constitution. And so I'd be very grateful if you could explain, what was Simon de Montfort trying to do in terms of tacking it back to Magna Carta? Hmm. Well, Magna Carta was tremendously important throughout the 13th century as a benchmark of good government in setting out that the government couldn't operate except under the law. And it also tied the important principle of, of government by consent 
um, to, to anything that the king did. So the original issue of Magna Carta in 1215 um, said not only that the king uh, couldn't deprive anyone of their property or imprison them, etc., but by the law of the land, but it also set out the principle in Chapter 12 that taxation could only be won through the consent of a representative assembly. And that clause was dropped um, from subsequent issues, but the principle remained, and it was remembered and appealed to throughout the 13th century. But that didn't necessarily stop the king going ahead with plans um, without seeking the consent of Parliament. So what Simon de Montfort and his party were setting out to do between 1258 and 1265, when they seized power from the king, was to ensure the principle that Parliament would be held three times a year, come what may. Not just when the king wanted it, when he, particularly when he wanted a tax, but no matter what, because consultation and discussion should be an integral part of the government of the kingdom. So that was set in place in 1258 and 1265 and his his parliament of the early months of that year was the culmination of, of that principle. And that was where men from the towns, as well as knights from the shires, were, were brought to parliament. But it's quite an interesting background, isn't it? Because Magna Carta says that nobody shall be um, held without a due trial. But both the king and Prince Edward, or Lord Edward, are being held by Simon de Montfort. So he's not really going with Magna Carta when his parliament is summoned. It's very tricky because, absolutely, um, they were being held. They'd been taken by violence. The whole regime that Simon de Montfort had put in place rested on, on the violent seizure of power. Henry and Edward were his prisoners and... He also used that Parliament of 1265 to effect the seizure of Edward's lands. He basically used it um, as a way of, of seizing Edward's lands and in the same breath in that Parliament confirmed Magna Carta, which said nobody should be deprived of their property without lawful judgment. So there was a lot of um, uh, tricky double dealing going on. And the bringing of people from the boroughs, which hadn't been done before, what was Simon de Montfort's motivation for doing that? Mm. Well, there were two key elements to the 1265 Parliament. One was the inclusion of knights elected in their counties, and that wasn't entirely new uh, in 1265, but um, it was an important part of, of his regime. But men coming from the towns was something that seems to be new. And really, there's, there's two sides to the explanation for that. One is that it was an important development of the princi principle of government by consent. Because if we think back to, to um, 1215 in that era, it was the barons who could be taken to represent the broader kingdom. With the growth of the towns and the counties and their importance in political society in the 13th century, it now mattered that those people be given a voice in the running of the kingdom too. So that was an important principle. Um, it was also a recognition that in order to, to operate government effectively, uh, Simon de Montfort and his party needed their help 
because in order to, to run government on the ground, you needed these people on your side. But it was also a very effective way of promoting his regime, particularly because it did rest on violence. Um, it wasn't legitimate in, in the way that anybody would have conceived of, of that term. So if this party could demonstrate the virtue of this new regime, its commitment to Magna Carta, the importance of Parliament um, going forward, then all of those representatives would go home and tell their friends and families um, this message. And what I find so interesting about our general constitutional development is that 1215 Magna Carta, 1265, the borough members coming, Neither of these are well thought through constitutional developments after a constitutional convention. They are responses to immediate political problems that then somehow bed in. And Henry III is back in power a few months later. Um, Simon de Montfort's dead, what, in August of that year. And yet he doesn't reverse all this. The confirmation of Magna Carta remains and the borough members carry on coming. Indeed, to this day... Members of Parliament are still divided into county members and borough members. County members have slightly higher election expenses, which is the only difference that I'm aware of currently. But it, it continued. Why, why was that? Well, there was no going back from it, really, because once um, those representatives had been offered the opportunity to be involved in, um, in Parliament in that way, one couldn't really tell them to forget about it and go away and go back to the way things were. So I think that's an important part of it. Part of it. But it's also um, a recognition that really perhaps what um, the regime of 1258 to 65 was, was putting forward was more um, how things should be, given the importance of the towns, um, given the... the, the huge development of, of the towns economically, politically um, during the 13th century. So Henry III had to recognise that. But also because of all of these efforts that Simon de Montfort's party had made in reaching out to the broader population, right down to the bottom of the social scale, this had really created an appetite for involvement in um, Parliament so that Henry III really was required to build on that in order, um, in order to, to operate from now on, so that there was really um, a feeling across the country that um, this, this is how things should be. And, and Henry III was quite worried, wasn't he, that um, Simon de Montfort might become a religious figure like Thomas Beckett and ensures that the body is disposed of effectively and that relics are hidden and indeed the burial place is moved um, to downgrade it. And so there must have been a real fear that the popularity Simon de Montfort had beneath the rank of baron and count, because the hierarchy was still very supportive of, of Henry III, uh, would have undermined his regime if he hadn't um, brought them on board and managed to uh, prevent Simon de Montfort becoming this religious figure. Yes, indeed. And I think it's it's an important part of, of this period um, that we really have to understand. And that is that the, the sense that this was a holy cause and it was linked to, to the tradition in England of um, opposition to, to royal tyranny 
being something that was holy and, and sanctified, um, following in the example of Thomas Becket. So Simon de Montfort was considered a saint by many because like Thomas Becket, he'd given up his life um, for, for, for justice um, and to oppose the king and to stop him doing whatever he wanted. Um, so this popular sentiment in England really supported Simon de Montfort's um, elevation um, after his death at the Battle of Evesham in 1265. And that potentially was a real threat to Henry um, and also Edward as well. And, and it's really, it, it's easy to forget, isn't it, from a 21st century perspective, how important religion was to the people active in politics in this time. Because uh, I note in an article that you wrote that the main penalty for ignoring Magna Carta was excommunication and that therefore uh, political figures had to get the bishops to rally round to impose this penalty of excommunication if the basic principle that the king was under the law, the state was part of the law, wasn't followed. Mm. Indeed, and I think the more research we do on Magna Carta and the 1258-65 to 65 period, the more we understand just how integral the church was to, to the way that politics operated. So when Magna Carta was first set out in 1215, the idea was you'd have this security clause and a group of 25 barons would be in charge of um, enforcing Magna Carta by seizing the king's property if he um, broke the charter's terms. And that just couldn't be allowed. Uh, imagining a situation where if, if government didn't keep its promises, those um, with the means to do so could seize government assets. It's just not, uh, it would just turn everything upside down and cause a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, violent unrest. So that's why the bishops in 1225 stepped forward and said, well, we will enforce Magna Carta. There was a long tradition of, of bishops being involved in politics and enforcing good government. And this was how Magna Carta was enforced throughout the period. So whether that was the king breaking the charter or, or anyone else, they would fall under an automatic sentence of excommunication. So they would effectively be banished from the church and that would undermine the king's authority and legitimacy. So it was a serious penalty um, and it was employed throughout the period. And Henry III confirms Magna Carta even after Simon de Montfort uh, is dead and reassures the country that he will stick to to those terms, um, which obviously reinforces the new parliament because that has been, it's all about establishing things as if they had always been, isn't it? Trying to create an historic continuity where there wasn't really one. Exactly. And I think throughout the Middle Ages, what you see is that the political community has a tremendous sense of history. And that's partly remembering the good examples and bad examples from the past, but it's also um, that innovation, new types of government are not necessarily seen as a good thing. They can be very threatening. So saying um, that any political action has a precedent in the past and we can tie it to these historic statutes that everybody values and everybody loves creates this sense of continuity that is very reassuring. So even Simon de Montfort's regime in 1258 to 1265 claimed that it was just building on Magna Carta. And of course it wasn't, um, but that, that was an attempt to assure people. And this is the conundrum of Simon de Montfort, which I think comes across so well in your book, 
that he's a very attractive figure on the one hand, that he's driven by religion, he um, represents the people, he's trying to deal with um, a tyrannical approach to government. On the other hand, he's also a complete thug who is very successful in war, very good war leader, and very greedy because, I mean, again, this comes across so well in your book that he overreaches himself in his efforts to steal lands from um, uh, Prince Edward. Yes, I mean, he's, he's brutal um, in, in everything that he does. And I think what comes across really strongly in the sources is, on the one hand, he's a political acumen, um, for instance, the 1265 Parliament, but also um, how he, um, as you say, overreaches himself um, by um, using his position um, to, take, to take property and to take um, power but also um, that he was an incredible communicator. And I think that's an important part of, of um, his, his setup because he was incredibly intelligent, well-educated and articulate. And he knew exactly what message to send out to really um, pluck the sentiments from people's hearts. And at the same time, he was willing to stir up people's fear um, their, their trepidation, um, as well as appeal, appealing um, to their, their sentiments. So um, he was an incredible um, political figure in that way, but a terrifying person to be on the wrong end of, I think. And how did he communicate? Because obviously the forms of communication we take for granted simply don't exist in the 13th century. So how do you get a message across, particularly the context that you mentioned, that he was able to appeal right down the social scale? Well, there were official ways and unofficial ways of doing that. There was a historic communication network across England that the Crown had employed for centuries. So messages, proclamations could be sent out through the counties. Um, they could be read out in the marketplace and so on. Um, so he was able to, to call on this. And some of the most important measures that his regime put in place in 1258 and 1259 intended for the benefit of the wider population, they were communicated in this way through the towns and through the counties, um, but also it, it directly in English translation um, for the first time so that um, the, message could come up, the message could come across as clearly as possible. So these were the official ways of doing it. But the church, again, was incredibly important. Um, we've mentioned that the church was in charge of enforcing Magna Carta in the 13th century. And part of that involved proclaiming Magna Carta in parish churches across the land because if people broke it, their souls were at stake. And that meant they would be excommunicated if they, if they broke the charter. So they had to know what was in it. So people were accustomed to hearing these sorts of messages proclaimed to them regularly, and the church was an important part of that. When Simon de Montfort came to power, there were a lot of bishops, a lot of friars, a lot of clergy on his side. And we have evidence of these clergy preaching in support of his regime. We don't know exactly what they said, but there were certainly clergymen throughout the land um, giving sermons, describing um, the virtues of his regime. So by this way, the messages could, could reach every single uh, woman and man 
um, across England. Uh, and, and he has some key friendships with bishops, doesn't he, which really help with that. And um, this is a slight aside, but the English bishops don't support Anselm as Archbishop of Canterbury, and they don't support Becket as Archbishop of Canterbury, but they do, by and large, seem to support Simon de Montfort. I don't know why this surprises me, but it, it, it's interesting. Well, I think it's a really important point, um, because according to that tradition, um, as you say, they probably shouldn't have supported Simon de Montfort, because the historic role of the bishops was to help keep peace, and he was bringing war. So if we look back again to the age of Magna Carta, Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, might have had a lot of sympathy with the baronial rebels, but really had to try and enforce peace because that was his job. No matter how much he looked back to the tradition of Thomas Becket and, and standing up um, to, to royal tyranny. So we have to ask really why all of these bishops and the rest of um, all of these other clergymen decided to, put, to support Simon de Montfort. And I think perhaps part of it is the fact that there was a feeling that he was leading a holy cause, that he was supported by God, and winning this dramatic victory at the Battle of Lewis in 1264 against the odds helped to enforce that idea that he must be doing God's will. And he was also a crusader and had turned this cause into a crusade. Um, so that must have helped to sway them too. Um, but at the same time, it put them in a very difficult position um, because the Pope told them, you know, stop supporting uh, this regime. You need to support Henry III and put him back in power. You need to ensure peace. And after Simon de Montfort's downfall, a lot of them got in big trouble. And the, the, the papacy isn't great generally on Magna Carta, is it? Because Innocent III um, annuls it shortly after uh, John has agreed to it, and the papacy expects the bishops to behave themselves. And there's a papal legate, isn't there, who Simon is determined not to allow to come into England because he knows it will be bad news. It's very tricky. Again, you can see this sort of tension um, in what he's doing. Um, because it's, it's quite right that the, the Pope had um, annulled the original Magna Carta in 1215, but at the same time, um, he was probably quite right to do so because of that security clause that threatened to overturn the very order of society. Um, and later on, after Stephen Langton and the rest of the English bishops um, got rid of, of the nasty bits of Magna Carta and, and made it a, a, just a symbol of good government, and that meant the church could support it. And in the 1250s, the Pope actually ratified Magna Carta on that basis because it, it, it wasn't uh, threatening in the same way. But what the Pope in the 1260s certainly was not going to do was again support the, the overturning of, of government by violence. So he dispatched a papal legate to try and sort things out and... Simon de Montfort and his party forbade this man from entering England and in, fa in fact threatened his life if he tried to enter. So he had to try and negotiate with them by letter um, and, and by other diplomatic means um, in order to try and bring about a peaceful resolution and he wasn't able to do so. But you can see here again this tension between Simon de Montfort and his, his friends amongst the bishops who were 
pursuing what they felt to be a holy and a just cause and recognising the authority of the Pope, but at the same time having to, to stop him interfering in what they were doing. Yes, it, it is absolutely fascinating um, how, how many inconsistencies there are. Um, but it all, I mean, it's very easy to fall into the trap of um, a Whiggish deterministic view of English history, isn't it? Because you get Magna Carta saying um, about the specific term, no free man shall be taken or dispossessed of his goods, which in 1215 has a really specific definition. It, it doesn't mean everybody by any means. And what you're saying on the uh, uh, borough members, by 1265, this has already extended quite a lot, hasn't it? That it, it? It's no longer that specific feudal category. And you go on another 50 years or so, and it's clearly two separate words. It's no free man, meaning any any man. I mean, uh, uh, um, not much good for the women, but, but no free man may be taken or dispossessed. And Simon de Montfort is a very important part of this, in spite of the fact that he is a revolutionary trying to upturn the established order. Yes, indeed. And I think, well, actually, um, the, the translation in Magna Carta that we're all familiar with that says no free man shall be imprisoned, actually, the Latin uh, justifies better no free person, um, I think, really, in that there's a couple of uh, cases in King John's reign where... Um, this really affected women, and there's a famous case involving a great marcher baron called Matilda de Briose, who was imprisoned and killed without judgment. And that clause perhaps um, refers to her case um, as much as um, many others. But yes, indeed, um, the is she the one who's sorry to interrupt? Is she the one who's in the tower in in, in um, Windsor Castle with her son? Yes, indeed, probably perhaps Windsor, perhaps Corf. We're not quite sure, right. but. Um, she and her husband and her family rebelled against King John and he, he set out to destroy them. And she and her eldest son were imprisoned and starved to death. And starved to death. Yes, it's a particularly horrible story and, and one of the reasons King John's reputation has never really recovered, I think. Sorry to have interrupted. Indeed, no, it's, it's, it's a really interesting case. Um, but it shows, I think, the involvement as well of some of those um, noble women in politics in the period that we don't always um, see, even if it didn't work out very well for Matilda. Um, but yes, the original Magna Carta in 1215 only applied to the free population, which excluded a lot of people who were unfree, that is, people who owed service to their lords that was entirely arbitrary. They didn't know um, what they would be doing on from one day to the next, um, and, and Magna Carta excluded them. And that was as much the say of the barons in 1215 as it was of King John, because these great lords had a vested interest in keeping their tenants under their heel. Um, what we see between 1258 and 1265 is an extension um, by Simon de Montfort's party, perhaps um, or very much influenced by the church, that good lordship was much more about what was right rather than what you could legally get away with. And therefore, your good lordship should include the unfree and people of every social status. Um, so we see a big change there and we see the impact on the wider population of England where people at the lowest um, 
people of the lowest status in society take up the cause um, in, in the civil war because they believe that they are included in this new political community. So that's a big part of the story. And the other part is the um, is representation. So it's a huge extension of the political base to gain Simon de Montfort's support in his battles against the king. You then get Parliament being accepted, the reconfirmation of Magna Carta, and the reclaiming of the right not to have taxation without the approval of Parliament. And I know you know I wanted to discuss this. This gets you eventually to 1297 um, uh, and the... Um, law on tallage, which is still the basis for the House of Commons' right to have to approve taxation before it's imposed upon the people. Mm. Yes, indeed. And the 1297 statute is very important, really, as the culmination of this story. So Magna Carta 1215 had attempted to say that tax could only be levied in Parliament by common consent, or a General Assembly, um, as it was called then. And that involved the great tenants-in-chief, the great magnates of the land, also uh, people of, of sort of knightly and middling status. They're not named specifically in that clause. They're sort of tacitly included. But there was a sense that the greatest men of the land could stand for, represent um, this, this wider community. What we see over the course of the century is the feeling changing so that men from the towns as well as knights from the shires have to actually give their explicit consent on such occasions. The difficulty was that that wasn't actually codified in law. It might have been a general principle, but it wasn't codified. And what we see in Edward I's reign is that in many ways he, he learned um, he learned a lot from Simon de Montfort's regime and, and recognised the importance of Parliament. He held regular parliaments throughout the first 20 years of his government. Um, knights and, and, and other representatives only attended on a few occasions because they didn't need to come more often because mainly they would only be summoned if they had to give their consent to taxation. So the big trouble comes in the 1290s with Edward's wars in, in France and Scotland in particular that were eye-wateringly expensive and required huge taxation in order to pay for them. And when we get to the mid-1290s, he starts really forgetting that principle that he can only really um, secure those taxes through consent of, of all of these representatives um, in Parliament, and that was what really kicked off the crisis of 1297. It is so fascinating. I feel this conversation go on forever. I, I'm thinking about the comparisons between um, uh, the 13th century and the 17th century, because there are so many parallels. A godly religious leader, um, a rebellion against the crown, depending upon widening popular support, the question of the rights of taxation and Parliament. It makes a very early period in our history seem remarkably modern. Yes, indeed. I think it's. Um, I think the principles that were being um, advocated in this period, and we can see this um, in, in twelve ninety seven as well, are principles that we would very much recognise. What we see, for instance, in in the twelve ninety seven crisis, 
is a big objection to a couple of things, and that is is firstly, um, in the case of um, of Edward's wars, um, gratuitous demands for for military service and things like this, which which were incredibly onerous, um, but also in this case. Um, making demands of people um, whilst claiming that you had won their consent, whilst actually making decisions with a very small group of people. So what Edward did in 1297 was um, declare that attacks had been granted by common consent in Parliament when actually he just made it with his cronies. You know, he'd, he'd just agreed this with the men. The men standing around in his chamber is the words that one chronicle used. And obviously nobody was going to be convinced when he told them that they'd agreed to attacks that nobody could remember being asked about. So this this idea that um, major policy decisions were being um, decided upon with just a very small group of, of, of unelected cronies um, was a real issue in 1297, just as it had been actually um, for King John's government as well, and he'd he'd gone about things the same way. So a marker needed to be set down in law this time, not just by a general principle, but in law, that that wasn't the way to make policy, that wasn't the way um, to raise tax, and it had to be transparent, inclusive decision-making. And the statute of tallage did that, and found the power of the House of Commons, effectively. Dr. Ambler, thank you so much for joining this podcast. It's much appreciated. And any listener who hasn't got the message yet, I would really encourage to listen to your book or read it in the old-fashioned, traditional way, because it really brings the 13th century to life. Well, thank you very much um, for the plug, and thank you very much um, for inviting me to join you. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss um, these things and also the the importance of, of so many of these principles for us today. Thank you.